0: to the program. You have found yourself listening to Shout for Libraries.
1: Or maybe you're intentionally tuning in to Shout for Libraries. (sighs) That is true. You may have done this on purpose. Thanks. To those of you not listening on purpose, we are Shout for Libraries, 10 out of 10 listeners, number one choice for library-centric news on community radio. I don't, I don't know if you should say that,
0: Michelle. Do you have a credible source for that information? Uh, librarians are the worst. We are a group of Masters in Library and Information Studies students at the University of Alberta, and we bring you fresh library-ish news content once a month. And this month is part two of our two-part series about how libraries respond, especially in times of crisis. We have some great examples of this today, and Michelle is going to start us off with
1: one right now. To get us back into the swing of things, let's set the tone for today's episode by talking about the opioid crisis and what libraries and individual librarians are doing in response. The tone for today, in case it wasn't quite clear, isn't exactly light, but it is hopeful, so let's dive on in. First... What is an opioid? These are chemical compounds that bind to certain types of receptors in the brain and spinal cord that have analgesic or narcotic effects. That means drugs that reduce pain, create a sense of euphoria, and induce sleep or stupor. Some of these drugs are legal with the right prescription like oxycodone Percocet, and hydrocodone Vicodin. others, like heroin, aren't. Second, what is the crisis? In 2017, almost 50,000 people died of an opioid overdose in the United States alone. That's about 130 deaths every day. One factor in the increased number of deaths is the introduction of fentanyl, a drug 100 times more powerful than morphine, which acts as a cheap way for drug dealers to make street drugs more powerful. Fentanyl amounts equal to a few grains of salt are enough to kill an adult. Another is the high level of opioid prescription arising in part from Purdue Pharma's fraudulent and aggressive marketing of OxyContin as being free of unacceptable side effects. While OxyContin has been pulled from the shelves, decades of overprescription of opioids generally has created massive addiction among those to whom it was injudiciously prescribed. I would argue that we haven't seen a larger outcry or greater response to the crisis for the same reason that the AIDS crisis was ignored for so long. It affects a group of people who are perceived to have brought it on themselves through moral failings. For AIDS, it was the LGBTQ community. This epidemic was first referred to popularly as GRID, or Gay Related Immune Disorder. Many people didn't care about the devastation this community experienced, or even might have been quietly cheering it on. Today, those at risk to become victims of the opioid crisis face a similar problem with the stigma of addiction muting public outcry and hampering a swift and effective response. The famous Rat Park experiment by Dr. Bruce Alexander and his colleagues at Simon Fraser University demonstrated that addiction is largely circumstance-dependent. This experiment placed some rats in a small rat utopia where all of their physical, mental, and social needs were met, while others were placed in solitary cages with no stimulation or comfort. Both groups were given the choice between regular water and water laced with morphine. In the group placed in pleasant conditions, few rats chose the morphine water, while the rats placed in mentally and socially bleak conditions unanimously developed a drug dependency. In demonstrating that addiction is a function of conditions creating happiness or despair, Dr. Alexander effectively destroyed any credible basis for viewing addiction as a problem of personal shortcomings. This is something that we all need to bear in mind as we address the opioid crisis to prevent the stigma of addiction from stopping us from helping people in desperate need. Third, how have libraries responded to the crisis? There have been several different responses employed in libraries across Canada and the United States. The one which has received the most attention is staff training to administer Narcan, a drug that reverses the effects of an opioid overdose. Many libraries have implemented this program, including the Edmonton Public Library, while others have chosen not to for fear of legal liability, such as the Vancouver Public Library in 2017. Additionally, in public and K-12 school libraries, social-emotional learning programs have sprung up to help students with drug-dependent family members by teaching them to manage severe stress. The aim of this is to help these children maintain or attain mental and emotional stability while stuck in difficult situations and prevent them from developing an addiction themselves. Libraries are also stocking up on fiction related to addiction, hoping to alleviate feelings of isolation caused by personal addiction or the addiction of a friend or family member. Another response has been through the provision of information. This has included bringing together expert panels to discuss their experiences and answer questions and connecting the community members to local organizations created to provide assistance, including the supervised consumption sites open in Alberta as of 2018. Before we move on to our interviews, Remember that if you have a problem and need information, librarians will help you. You can ask without being judged. We care about you, and we are here to help. Thanks, Michelle.
0: That was a great overview of that crisis and what libraries are trying to do in response. We are going to jump right in to a few interviews about some other ways that libraries respond. First, we have Shouts' Kendra Cowley interviewing Hilary Barlow about MATLAB Wanted. MATLAB Wanted is a collaborative project between the Tamer Institute for Community Education and Librarians and Archivists with Palestine. The aim of the MATLAB initiative is to both address the direct need for Arabic children's literature and to raise awareness about the structural challenges faced by Palestinian libraries.
2: My name is Hilary Barlow. I'm an American archivist and librarian currently based in Toronto, Canada, and I'm a member of the Steering Committee for Librarians and Archivists with Palestine, also known as LAP or LAP. Awesome. And can you tell us a bit about LAP, um, who y'all are and, and what you do? So we're an organization of um, information workers, archivists, librarians, uh, paraprofessionals, and other folks um, interested in uh, contributing to the cause of Palestinian liberation through our you know, expertise as information professionals. Some of the, the major um, founding events for LAP were two delegations um, of information workers who visited Palestine, um, including the West Bank, Um, so occupied Palestine and Gaza, but also what we we call 48, or uh, the state of Israel, Mm -hmm. Um, or Palestinians often call uh, 48, referring to 1948 when uh, Israel became a state. Um, And these were in 2013 and 2015, and members of the delegation visited um, Palestinian libraries and archives throughout the region, including academic libraries, public libraries, and um, just to meet with our colleagues in the region and get an idea of what their their work is like, where they live, the experiences and the things that were learned then in, have informed our projects in the years following. Uh, but one of them was an organization called the Temer
3: Institute,
2: the mm-hmm. Temer Institute for Community Education. And they're an NGO. They were established in 1989 uh, during the first Intifada, mm-hmm. our uprising in, in occupied Palestine. And they specialize in childhood literacy programming. Um, and they, they run things like children's writing contests, and they actually publish some of their own children's literature. Wow. And um, for that Lube, a wanted... Um, LAP is partnering specifically with them because of their specialized knowledge and a lot of what um, we have been able to learn about the challenges of um, getting good good children's literature to Palestinian libraries is is through Tamar.
0: Right.
2: And a lot of what is more easily available are in translations from Hebrew and English, Mm -hmm. and um, some of them aren't even very good uh, translations. And uh, a lot of this is because, um, you know, uh, these are are relatively small isolated areas um, where uh, uh, things being imported from outside or or, or people moving in and out of occupied Palestine, talking specifically about the West Bank and Gaza, um, is highly regulated by the state of Israel. And uh, when it comes to things like um, importing things, there are there's something called an enemy state designation, mm-hmm. and that means that um, things being imported from certain states have specific restrictions on them. And um, when it comes to books, the country of Lebanon is a major producer of Arabic language literature, mm-hmm. and Lebanon is considered one of the... Um, is part of the enemy state designation, so is Syria, Iran, and some other countries. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if Say a library in the West Bank or Gaza wants to import some stuff, um, the books could be um, held and, um, and for days, and um, held at the cost of recipients. So the library would have to pay for it being held, or, or even destroyed, or just sent back. Yeah. And I'm wondering, one of the things um, that you spoke to was this idea that even when there are books in Arabic, um, they're often translations into Arabic. And I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit to what's lost when it, a book is tr- is translated, or what what's missing when kids or, or readers in Palestine don't have access to books written and published in Arabic? I think um, a lot of cultural knowledge is lost, because, I mean, you know, it can be beneficial to learn about the languages, the um, stories from other cultures, certainly, um, but when you don't have something that, uh, or access, or as good access to stories that are from your own culture, and, you know, you miss out on a lot, and it's, it's frustrating, because um, sometimes, they even won't have access to some Palestinian literature. As one example, um, a famous Palestinian poet Mahmoud Darwish. Sometimes they'll even miss out on Palestinian literature that can't get to them um, because, you know, uh, Palestinian writers, you know, wanting to get be matched with really great publishers, will often publish outside of Palestine. Um, and the, so there's that, so that um, that gap of having access to, to cultural production is a big part of it. Definitely. So what would, the, what would the journey look like for books um, coming from Lebanon? So they would come through and they, so if they're just say, being mailed through, they have to be approved by an Israeli um, agent to come in. And that agent um, has the option to seize the material. Um, it can be destroyed just completely destroyed and and never get there at all. Mm. It can be sent back to where it came from, like it can be sent back to Lebanon, Uh, just held um, by the authority and not move and be held for days. And when that happens, the recipient of the materials um, will be charged, so the library would be charged for it. Yeah, so mathlub is an Arabic word that means wanted, playing on the fact that these are materials that the libraries really want to have, and also the fact that, you know, as I mentioned, there is this, this legal issue with how um, imports are, are regulated by Israel and that, that challenge. Um, so with MATLU, um, in collaboration with the Temer Institute, um, you, if you go on the MATLU website, you will see books that have been specifically requested, by libraries in the West Bank and Palestine, or West Bank and Gaza, rather, all in occupied Palestine. And uh, there are 11 11 libraries in the West Bank and six in Gaza. And you can also read um, profiles of all the different libraries. And um, the purpose um, in that loop is to get funding um, to purchase uh, items that have specifically been requested and then to get them through the custom be to libraries that really want them. The website is org. Great. At the website, you can browse through the books that have been requested and choose which ones you'd like to sponsor to be sent. Mm-hmm. And there are also profiles of all the different
1: libraries that are participating. Great. Thank you so much, Hillary. Thanks to Kendra for that interview with Hilary Barlow. Listeners interested in librarians and archivists with Palestine's other initiatives can go to librarianswithpalestine.org to read about their past delegations and the one-book Many Communities Campaign to Promote Palestinian Literature.
0: Next we'll go to Gabriella Fontaine's interview with Mary Weaselfatt, who is the library coordinator at Red Crow Community College, also known as Kainai, about the two fires at Kainai Library and how the library coped with the loss of their resources and building.
3: My Blackfoot name is Imota that's Diving Around Woman. And I've been working here for 24 years, yeah.
2: Mary gave us a brief history of how the community college's library came to be.
3: The one that started the library was Sister Ann Myrta. She was, uh, she worked with the University of Lethbridge. She had a PhD in English mm-hmm. and she met the former president, Marie Smallface Maruli. And uh they met at a Treaty Seven Education Conference at the U of L and uh they got to talking and sister Anne, uh she's a Catholic nun, she wanted to know how she could help and she said, Well, they need a library and sister Anne said, Well, but she has worked in libraries and she developed some and she has her papers for a library to work in a library. So they got together and then she went out to the campus at St. Mary's and started the library there, and it was just in a sort of like a little little classroom where it started from. Anyway, so I've been working in the library and we experienced two two fires, uh, one in uh, 2001 at our old campus, located at the former St. Mary's residential school on the blood reserve and then uh then one in 2015 and that destroyed the whole li- the whole college including our all our library holdings hmm. our uh, archives mm-hmm. we had uh, small archives and it had uh uh items donated to the college for safekeeping But uh, that's kind of ironic. (laughs) Anyways, everything burnt. And we had uh, the Little Bear, Leroy Little Bear's land collection, which he gathered for years. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had hard copies of Kainai News. That was a digitizing project I did with the University of Lethbridge. And we also did the Sundance Echo. And that was before Kainai News. And that was in the, I think, 1970s, around there. The first fire wasn't... as bad, but the one that was most affected was the library because it was started in the basement in the cafeteria, and uh the library was in the old chapel which is which was above the kitchen okay so so and then it kind of um it destroyed our uh first nations Native American collection but everything was destroyed our book collection the archives that we had and uh <clears throat> we were just going to get some of the blood tribe oh, the red crow traditional land use study uh, all their material and uh just a lot of things that we held in the library mm-hmm. and they all burnt up and then
2: After the first fire in 2001 destroyed the entire collection, a second library was established in the school.
3: A fire in the basement destroyed the library. So Mm -hmm. then they just closed it down and they moved us around a bit and then we ended up in the basement in the old boys' playroom. So that's where we rebuilt the library at the old uh, campus. Okay. And then we were going fine there and everything had been catalogued, mm-hmm. and then uh, Nora down she's a library technician, she's the one that does uh, cataloging, mm-hmm. and uh, we had just finished doing, you know, everything, and we were going to start doing programs, and then the fire come and destroy everything, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so that's what happened. It was uh, a lot of hard work, and then it just went oh. up in flames. This is my third time rebuilding the library. So when
2: I asked Mary if she knew how the fire started, she had this to say.
3: Well, it was, they said it was arson, but mm-hmm. they've never really caught uh, culprits. So.
0: Okay. And the
3: other one, too, was arson. It was these it was kids. Well. Yeah. Okay. Because they said it was an old residential school and they wanted to burn it up. But here mm-hmm. it was a college. Yes. Yes. Uh, some people were happy that it burnt down because uh, it was a residential school. hmm it was St. Mary's Catholic Residential School. It opened in the 1920s, yeah, and okay. some of them were happy it burnt down because they had a hard time there. Mm-hmm.
2: I asked Mary if she had any advice for libraries to take to prevent this kind of crisis from happening to them.
3: Well, disaster planning would be one. Yeah. And uh, and I think security. hmm 24-hour security, and probably um, have a backup of some of your, Mm -hmm. oh, digitizing would be good. If we had known we were going to have a fire, we would have digitized everything. Yeah. Right now, we are keeping things, we have a backup of everything, and we're keeping them at the health department across the street from us because they have a real secure system.
2: Oh, and here's what Mary said about the plans for the community college's future.
3: Yeah, no, mm-hmm. we're actually going to build a new campus. Oh, really? And we'll have a new library, state of the art, with more, more space for uh, computers. Uh, sort of like, um, and then we'll also have like breakout rooms too for them to do their work, group mm-hmm. work. Mm-hmm. And a lot of space for computers. at okay. right? the architect stage, and mm-hmm. we've been uh, meeting with uh, the students, the staff, and uh, even community members, what would they like to see here?
1: The last segment we have for you comes from Joel Blushinger. Joel did an interview last month with Scott Bonner from Ferguson Public Library. In this segment, Joel discusses Winnipeg Public Library's recent instituted security measures that stigmatized marginalized library users in light of Scott Bonner's comments from last episode about crises in slow motion. He discusses how the public has mobilized in reaction to the security measures and just this week has advocated to the Winnipeg City Council Committee to reevaluate them this spring. Here's Joel.
4: Last episode, I had the privilege of speaking to Ferguson Public Library Director Scott Bonner, and in a wide-ranging conversation, perhaps the most provocative comment he made to me was in response to the episode's theme of libraries in times of crisis. Scott said, quote, What libraries do every day is responding to crisis, because... Poverty is a crisis in slow motion. I thought of Scott's comments this past week when an inspiring group of around 200 people staged a read-in at Winnipeg Public Library's main downtown Millennium Library in protest over significantly increased security measures at the library that have been in place since the 25th of February. The Millennium Library has procedures in place to ensure books are checked out before they leave. (laughs) Soon it will be library patrons being checked out if they want to come in. Since then, all visitors over 13 to Millennium have had to undergo bag checks and handheld metal detector screenings before being able to access the library. Manager of Library Services Ed Cuddy had explained those new security procedures according to a 15th of February CBC News piece as arising out of a need to ensure that, quote, the safety of all visitors is a priority at the library, and the boost in security comes after an increase in the number and seriousness of violent incidents and threats at the library over the past four or five years. This decision has been met with concern, however, from local activists and community poverty advocates such as Ray Eskrit, University of Manitoba history professor Adele Perry, and local writer and academic Owen Taves, who argue that WPL's implementation of security theater could very likely have the opposite effect of increasing mistrust, anxiety, and fear amongst already marginalized library users who come to Millennium because they do not have the privilege and capital to access other spaces in Winnipeg's downtown. As Eskert claims in an interview with Winnipeg's The Uniter, the incidents taking place at Millennium are ultimately about poverty, and not security. She says, quote, the crisis is that people don't have enough to eat, they don't have anywhere to live, and people are suffering hugely under the burden of capitalism and all of the racism and classism and suffering that comes with it. In this article, Our Public Library, Social Reproduction in Urban Public Space in Toronto by Leah Fredrickson, Fredrickson analyzes battles over proposed budget cuts to Toronto Public Library in the summer and fall of 2011, arguing that public libraries can be understood as unique places of social reproduction amidst increasingly privatized contemporary neoliberal cities. As she states, quote, Neoliberalism results in the dramatic expansion of state activity, often at the local scale, to ensure that states, markets, and households are restructured according to specific economic and political logics. This is why... I, she, discussed the intensified role of public libraries in the changing spatial organization of social reproduction, because their importance as public spaces for individuals sharply increases as other public services are constrained or dismantled. That was from page 144. According to this reading, then, security concerns at Millennium need to necessarily be analyzed against the backdrop of contemporary neoliberal urban policies and privatizing market logics that have, to quote Fredrickson, intensified the role of the public library in the changing spatial organization of social reproduction in Winnipeg's downtown ecosystem. An example relevant to these security concerns could be, if people do not have affordable housing, then as people experiencing homelessness, they may have all of their possessions on them at any given time. This could include devices such as knives, which they carry for self-protection. To treat this discreetly and carcerally by stigmatizing and barring those with knives from entering the library, then, does not take the necessary macro view of why people may be carrying such items, or, to think even more broadly, why people are experiencing homelessness in Winnipeg's downtown. Brianne Selman, a librarian with the University of Winnipeg, recently published a powerful, well referenced open letter on Millennium Library security screening procedures detailing her concerns with the security measures. I'll quote from Selman's main points here While the new security measures apply to everyone equally, they disproportionately negatively affect people from racialized communities as well as people who have been subjected to violence and trauma. These security measures are likely to increase the overall lack of safety for both workers and patrons. Library workers are vulnerable when libraries are understaffed and under-resourced. These security measures will likely lead to decreased use of the Millennium facility, which may be used to justify further cuts to their services. WPL needs autonomy to make their own decisions in a transparent way and to communicate about those decisions to the community they serve. Security screenings are not a replacement for appropriate public services for downtown. These points all lead Selman to conclude, These security measures stop library services from reaching many parts of their community, increase tensions, and reduce safety in the downtown area, disproportionately affect already marginalized communities, and erode the role of public libraries in Canada. Returning to Bonner's comments from last week, with which I began this piece, that libraries deal with crises in slow motion, I'd like to applaud Winnipeg's Millennium for All movement, which staged a 200-person strong read-in on April 2nd, and as of April 5th, has successfully pressured Winnipeg's City Council Committee to reevaluate the security measures. Quoting from a Millennium for All press release shared on Twitter on the 4th of April, quote, At a meeting of the Standing Policy Committee on Protection, Community Services, and Parks the morning of April 4, 2019, Councillor Sherry Rollins tabled a motion requesting Winnipeg Public Services to consider alternatives to the security measures and examine best practices of public facilities in other Canadian cities. The motion, which was carried unanimously, requires that Winnipeg Public Services provide a verbal report back in 60 days and a written report in 120 days. Millennium for All and other community advocates in Winnipeg have acted on behalf of all Canadians concerned for their public libraries by resisting the establishment of a dangerous carceral precedent in public library space. In doing so, they've shifted their community's focus from the heightened manufactured crisis of security theater to the real lived crises of those marginalized identities experiencing homelessness in Winnipeg.
1: Well, we are reaching the conclusion of our episode. Special thanks to Hilary Barlow and Mary Weasel Fat for joining us. And don't forget to check check it out. out!